Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a sovereign grace fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently working our way through the book of Isaiah. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. I know where we were. I know where we left off. Turn to Isaiah chapter 50. While you're looking, I read a bit of Martin Luther this morning that really resonated with me, especially considering what I've been through the last several weeks. The quote from Luther is, and he was talking about thankfulness toward God. He said, if God had been more sparing with his blessings, we would be more thankful for them. In other words, if life was constantly difficult, if life was hard all the time, and then occasionally we had a little break from that, a little respite, we'd be really thankful for that moment of relief. And instead, God pours out blessings on us all day, every day, and we don't remember to go say thank you. And so I really like that quote from Luther because if I have learned anything, and I would like to think that I've learned a lot the last couple of months, what I have learned is to be thankful for all the little things Well, I say all the little things. I'm not good enough at it yet to include all the little things. But to be thankful for the little things that I used to take for granted. And then God stripped them away from me. And when they came back, I was so very grateful for little things. Being able to go do my own grocery shopping instead of having to call Tom and tell him what I needed or call my kids to bring me something. Being able to just go out in society and take care of myself. Just to be able to get behind the wheel of my car and go take care of my own errands. I guess the lesson there directly from Martin Luther is that we need to remember to be thankful for all this stuff. And the reason that we aren't is because there's so much good stuff. And God blesses us so much And we forget to go back and say thank you. Isaiah 50. The Old Testament is the only scripture that was extant during the time that the New Testament was being written. When Paul was writing to Timothy and he said to Timothy that the word of God is God-breathed, theonostos. The scriptures are God-breathed and are profitable for teaching instruction in righteousness. When he said that, the only scripture that existed was what we call the Old Testament. That was the scripture Paul was referring to that was God-breathed and profitable. When he said to Timothy, preach the word, the only word that existed to preach was what we call the Old Testament. When the writer of Hebrews said that the word of God is active, and living, sharper than any two-edged sword. The only scripture that existed at that point, the only word of God that he could be referring to is what we would refer to as the Old Testament. Jesus, when he was walking on the Emmaus Road, talking to the two disciples who didn't understand his resurrection, even as he was walking with them, he at one point said to them that they were foolish and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have written. And so Jesus himself validated, verified what we're reading right here from Isaiah. So several weeks ago, as we were going through Isaiah 49, we were seeing the language of the suffering servant and saying, obviously, this is Christ. Everybody would agree that this was a direct reference to Christ. Tonight, we're going to see an even more direct reference to Christ, (laughs) undeniably to Christ, and everybody would agree that it's about Christ. And yet, in the same passage, in the same prophecy, the same prophet 
also says things about national Israel and God's faithfulness to national Israel. And when it comes to hunting and pecking through the Bible, choosing the particular verses that you're going to concentrate on and the ones that you're going to ignore, so much of the modern church concentrates on the Isaiah passages about Christ in order to demonstrate that Christ was the suffering servant to come, and yet they will leap right over with great dexterity and deafness. They will jump right over the passages of the same prophecy that talk about God's faithfulness to Israel. I don't know why they do that, because we're going to see that same thing tonight. In fact, chapter 50 starts with the phrase, Thus says the Lord, where is the certificate or the bill of divorcement by which I sent your mother away? These days, when we think divorce, we think you go to court, you get a judge to sign off on a piece of paper in order to make it a legally binding divorce. In the law, if a man was displeased with his wife or found some impurity in her, all he had to do was give her a written bill of divorcement, a certificate of divorcement by his own hand, and then what he would do is put her out of the house. The word that is translated as divorce here simply means putting away or putting out so that you're separating yourself from your wife by putting her out of your house. And that, by the way, is exactly what God did to the northern ten tribes. The house of Israel was put so far out of their house that they were brought into Assyria. God put them away. God divorced them. And I'll show that to you in just a moment. Oftentimes, when the subject of divorce is spoken of, people will quote Malachi 2.16, and they'll say, but God hates divorce. That phrase is often used against people who have been divorced. It reads, for the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. So there it is. God hates divorce. But if that were the know-all and the end-all of the topic, then what are we going to do about Jeremiah 3, where God divorces Israel? So God can both hate divorce and also divorce Israel because that's appropriate, because of their harlotries, because of their chasing after other gods, because of their rebellion against him. He sent them out of his house, out of the land of Canaan and into the land of Assyria. In fact, if you're in Isaiah 51 right now, go to the very next book. That's the book of Jeremiah and go to Jeremiah 3. And we're going to read this so that you understand that Israel, the northern tribes, God did in fact put them away and he said so. So there's no question about it. But then in the same breath, God holds Judah, the southern kingdom, as also guilty because they witnessed what God did to the northern tribes. And yet they did not turn from their rebellion. And so the natural question in Isaiah 50 is since God did not send Judah permanently out of the house, since he did not give them a bill of divorcement, he asks them the question, where is the bill of your divorcement? When did I divorce your mother? When did I put you out? Then he's going to blame them and say, you caused the separation. You're the one that left. I'm not the one that drove you out. So let's start by establishing from Jeremiah 3 what God says about his putting away of Israel. Starting right at verse 1, God lays out a principle for national Israel to live by. God says, if a husband divorces his wife and she goes from him and then belongs to another man, will he still return to her? So if there's a man and a wife that are married, and then he puts her out of the house, 
she finds another husband. That husband isn't pleased with her and he puts her out. The question is, can she then return to her first husband? God here says no, because that would pollute the land. Will not the land be completely polluted? But you are a harlot with many lovers. And yet, says God, and yet you turn to me, declares the Lord. So he's just laid out a principle. He's just said that when it comes to human marriages, if a man divorces his wife, he can't take her again to wife after she has had another husband. And then he applies that to Israel and says, you're a harlot and you've chased after many of your lovers, not just one. You haven't just gone and married one other man. You've played the harlot with many other men and then you come back to me like I'm now just going to let bygones be bygones. And yet, having laid out that principle, says this in verse 6. The Lord said to me in the days of Josiah the king, Have you seen what faithless Israel did? She went up on every high hill and under every green tree, and she was a harlot there. So what Israel actually did was that they went to the green ashram. They went to the tops of the hills where the altars were to the foreign gods. They worshipped other gods by the means that those other gods were worshipped by. God likens that to harlotry. And he asks Jeremiah the prophet, have you seen this? Have you seen what they're doing? Is it any wonder I would put them away? They've played the harlot up on every high hill and under every green tree. And she was a harlot there. And I thought, after she has done all these things, she will return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. So he likens Judah and Israel to two erring sisters. He does the same thing in the book of Ezekiel, even gives them names and takes it all the way back to Egypt and says that they were Ahola and Aholabah, and that they were two sisters both erring, rebellious sisters. So here the sister Judah has seen what her erring sister Israel has done. And God says, and I thought that after they went off and chased the other gods, that they would recognize the emptiness, the pointlessness of those other gods, and they would come back to me. They would return to me. But they didn't. They continued in their harlotry. They did not return, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. And I saw that for all the adulteries of faithless Israel, that I had sent her away, and I had given her a writ of divorce. So it's about as plain as it gets. God says, I put her away. That's why they were in the Assyrian captivity, and why they have not returned to the land of Canaan to this very day because God has put them out of his house. And yet, her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she went and she was a harlot also. So since they are two sisters, and God is a husband to them both, he gave a bill of divorcement to Israel, the northern tribes, but then he asked the question in Isaiah to Judah, where is the writ of your mother's divorcement? Because God did not divorce Judah. And of course, the reasoning is, the rationale is, big picture, he's keeping Judah intact because ever since Jacob leaned on his staff and told his 12 sons what was going to become them in the future, he pointed out that Judah was going to bring forth the king and that the peoples were going to gather to him and so Judah had to remain intact until Messiah came. That's why Messiah came. And then 70 AD, the Romans come in. God then scatters Judah as well. And so it came about, says verse 9, it came about because of the lightness of her harlotry. In other words, the way that she did it without even considering how evil it was or how it was against my law. Because of the lightness of her, har of her harlotry, she polluted the land and she committed adultery with stones and trees. Remember the first verse said, if a man marries a wife 
she marries someone else, and then that first man takes her back, that pollutes the land. There's the principle. God has now said, because Israel committed their harlotries, they have polluted the land, and they have committed adultery with stones and trees, and yet in spite of all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but rather in deception, declares the Lord. So at this point, God would be well within his rights, unquestionably, we would all agree, God has every right to divorce Israel and divorce Judah and be done with them utterly and completely. And yet we know that all the prophets prophesy with one voice. This is what the whole book of Hosea is about. When God tells the prophet Hosea, go marry a woman of harlotries. And then when she goes back to her lovers, God tells him to go win her back and to build a hedge around her and to keep her from her lovers, and then God defines the story for us, and God tells us that that's how he's dealing with Israel. Israel, whom he did divorce. He's going to bring them back. He's going to establish them. This is what all the prophets all say, and that's now what you're going to read from Jeremiah, right on the heels of saying, I did divorce Israel. He's now going to make this promise to them. Verse 11, And the Lord said to me, Faithless Israel has proved herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Because Judah had the example of Israel and saw how God drove Israel into Assyria. And yet Judah did not return to him with all their hearts. So God says that makes Israel more righteous than Judah. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, return Faithless Israel, declares the Lord, I will not look upon you in anger, for I am gracious, declares the Lord, and I will not be angry forever. There's the answer. The solution to Israel's problem isn't Israel. It can't be Israel. They're nothing but guilty, 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 and yet God says, Go proclaim these words to the north. Interesting, because that's where they all were up in Assyria. Go and tell them, return, faithless Israel. God is doing everything necessary to reestablish Israel in perfect keeping with what all the prophets have said about God's dealings with Israel. And then he says, I'm not going to look on you in anger. He should be angry. He should be filled with wrath at them. And yet he says, because he is gracious... He's not going to look on them in anger. Shall we apply that? Charlie, does God have any reason to be angry at you? Well, no, not you. I meant Carol. Carol does... <laughs> I should say so. Yeah, God has plenty of reason to be angry at you. And so is he going to turn from his anger because of you? Because yeah. something you do? You get good enough? You clean it up, you righteousify yourself. That cannot be the cause for why God accepts you. Instead, it has to be grace. It's always grace. From Genesis 1-1 to the end of Revelation 22, it has to be grace in order for anybody to be saved. And so God says the same thing to Israel here that we all are dependent on. We're all counting on the grace of God to be our redemption and to bring about our righteousness. He uses that same language for national Israel, the ones whom he divorced. I will not look upon you in anger, for I am gracious, declares the Lord. I will not be angry anymore. Only acknowledge your iniquity, that you have transgressed against the Lord your God, and you have scattered your favors among the strangers under every green tree. And you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless sons, declares the Lord, for I am a master to you, and I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. Where's that? Jerusalem. Home. This is the home I put you out of. When I divorced you, I put you out of my house. But by my grace, I'm going to bring you back home. And then I will give you shepherds after my own heart 
the same way that he tells Hosea, go and build a hedge around your erring wife so that her lovers can't get to her anymore. God takes the initiative here and says, I'm going to give you shepherds over the flock. Since you're erring sheep, since you're wandering stupid sheep, I'm going to give you shepherds after my own heart who are going to teach you and protect you and care for you and lead you. And I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you on knowledge and understanding. And it shall be in those days when you are multiplied and increased in the land, declares the Lord, they shall no more say, the ark of the covenant of the Lord. That shall not come to mind, nor shall they remember it, nor shall they miss it, nor shall it be made again. At that time, they shall call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord. And all the nations, the Gentiles, the Goyim, will be gathered to it, to Jerusalem. That's very clear. To Jerusalem, for the name of the Lord, they will be gathered there to Jerusalem because of the name of the Lord, because of Yahweh. Nor shall they walk any more after the stubbornness of their evil heart. What's God going to do? He's going to change their heart. He's going to take out their stony heart, give them a heart of flesh. And in those days, the house of Judah will walk together with the house of Israel. And they will come together from the land of the north to the land that I gave to your fathers as an inheritance. So you see the picture? God divorced the northern tribes, the house of Israel, put them out of the house. And despite the fact that he put a rule in place that said, once a woman goes and gets another husband, she can't go back to her first husband. And yet God says, I'm going to do that. Remember, this is the same God who says, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my thoughts above your thoughts. My ways above your ways. This is the same God who can say to you, don't judge, even though he judges all the time. So the rules that God puts in place for human beings are not rules that he imposes on himself. And so once he has established the rule that a woman cannot go back to her husband, he then says, but I'm going to bring Israel back to me. And I'm going to protect them. And I'm going to give them shepherds after my own heart who are going to feed them on wisdom and knowledge so that they have a greater understanding of me. I'm going to take out their stony heart. I'm going to give them a heart of flesh and compassion. And I'm going to bring them together with their sister Judah so that all 12 tribes collectively are going to be one nation together. And the Gentile nations are going to flow to Jerusalem when that all happens. None of that has happened yet. It says it right here. You got all that? Yep. Yep. Okay. That was introduction to Isaiah 50. In Isaiah 50, God is talking to Judah, the southern tribes, and asks the question, remember this is airing Judah. This is Judah who saw what God did to her sister, and yet did not turn, yet did not repent, yet did not change. And God says, where is the certificate of divorce by which I sent your mother away? Not only were they still in their land, but even when they went to Babylon, God specifically told Jeremiah, this is temporary. It's only 70 years. And even name Cyrus by name so that we know which king is going to send them back to reestablish Jerusalem and rebuild the walls and rebuild the temple. So it is a temporary punishment. And so naturally they would feel like, Judah would naturally feel like, okay, we've seen God send Israel out and they haven't come back. And now he sent us into Babylon. He must have put us out he must have divorced us. So naturally, God would ask the question, where's that? Notice, by the way, that God holds them accountable to his own word. And when they speculate, gee, now we're in Babylon, God must be divorcing us, he holds them to what he has and has not said. Very important principle. 
Don't be speculating about what you think God said or what you think God meant. God says, where is the certificate of divorce? Cough it up. Show it to me. Show me where I divorced you and sent your mother away. Or to whom of my creditors did I sell you? That was something that people could do with with their children even. They could do it with themselves. If they were so deeply in debt, they could sell themselves. And here the question from God is, I don't have any creditors. I don't owe anybody anything. So do you think I sold you off? Is that what you think I've done? Behold, you were sold for your many iniquities. And for your transgressions, your mother was sent away. Notice the language, really specific. Sent away, not permanent. But she was sent away. And you were sold into Babylon because of your iniquities. That's what God has said all the way along. The reason I am putting you into the Babylonian captivity is because of your transgressions. You're at fault here. Now he's going to make it very obvious. Why was there no man when I came? Why is it that when I called to you, there was nobody to answer me? And then this question, is my hand so short that it can't ransom you? What a wonderful question. God the infinite one saying, really, you're going to put a limitation on me? You think my hand is too short to get to you? You think that I can't redeem you, that I can't ransom you? Or do I have no power to deliver you? Behold, I dry up the sea with my rebuke. I make the rivers a wilderness. Their fish stink for lack of water. And then they die of thirst. I clothe the heavens in blackness. I make sackcloth their covering. And so God has just done the same thing he did with Job. He used the fact that he makes everything and that he's in control of everything and that he can change the course of rivers with just his breath, with just a word. He says, I do all that. I'm the all-powerful one. I'm the almighty. Do you really think that I sent you to Babylon and don't have the ability to come get you? I did not divorce your mother. I did not put you away permanently. You have not been put out of the house. And in fact, your own prophet, Jeremiah, has told you it's only going to be for 70 years. And you're in Babylon going, well, I guess God gave up on me. And God says, I I do everything. I'm the almighty. I'm the all powerful. My hand is not too short to ransom you. and, And I do have the power to deliver you. Have confidence in me. And why is it? That when I come, through my prophets, when I come and speak to you, there's nobody there listening. Why is it that no one's there? Why is it that nobody was ready to answer? And then in verse 4, it takes a decidedly Christological bent. And you'll see in a moment that this language is obviously about Christ. The Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples. Well, that's pretty obvious. One of the first things Jesus did when he began his three and a half year ministry was go pick disciples. He picked his apostles and in fact, he said to them, I chose you. You didn't choose me. The Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples to go and preach me, to go teach me, to understand my ways. So that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. In other words, it is the word. It is the word of the gospel. It is the word of the Bible. It is the word of Christ. It is the word of grace. It is the word of understanding of God that is comfort to the weary ones. And so when Christ came, he gathered to himself learners, disciples, apostles who would take his word to weary, worn out people. And that would be a word of comfort to them so that they could sustain the weary one with a word. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen like a disciple. So again, Christologically, this is Christ admitting that it is God himself 
who is in charge of all his days. That's why Christ said, I do always those things that please the Father. Because he recognized that his will was to do the Father's will and that it is his Father who got him up morning by morning and who taught him. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. Okay, here comes the proof where you're going to go, yeah, that's obviously Christ. I gave my back to those who strike me. John 19.1 says, Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Matthew 27.26 says, He released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Here in Isaiah, Christ speaking prophetically says, I gave my back to those who struck me. And I gave my cheeks to those who pluck out my beard, and I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. Well, that happened. Now, by the way, that phrase right there out of Isaiah, he plucked out my beard, has become standard Christological understanding, even though you don't see anywhere in the New Testament that it describes his beard being plucked out. But we understand that that was part of the torture that he endured because Isaiah said it. However, the spitting part, Matthew 27, 30 says, and they spit on him and they took a reed and they struck him on the head. Leviticus 21, 5, by the way, writing to the priests, says specifically they shall make no ball patches on their heads or shave off the edges of their beards or make any cuts on their body. That is probably the reason that part of the humiliation of Christ was to have his beard plucked out so that he as a priest was being humiliated. I gave my back to those who struck me. I gave my cheeks to those who pluck out my beard and I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting on me. For the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I'm not disgraced. Isn't that amazing? We read in the New Testament that because of the glory that was set before him, he endured the cross. He was willing to endure being completely ashamed before men and nailed to a cross among thieves and robbers and insurrectionists. And yet... It says in Isaiah that he was not utterly ashamed nor disgraced because the Lord was going to help him. God gave him the promise of this eternal glory to come. And so he was willing to embrace the fact that human beings were humiliating him. Therefore, I have set my face like flint. Very interesting phrase. What that means is I became hard-headed. I was determined to do exactly what I came here to do. And you see that in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he says, if it was up to me, I would say, take this cup away from me. But not my will be done, but yours. And he set his face steadfastly. In fact, we read when it was time. Because through his whole ministry, he kept saying, it's not my time yet. It's not my time yet. And then we read that when it became his time, he set his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem. That's the language. And even that determination by him steadfastly to go to Jerusalem so that he could be crucified is written about right here in Isaiah. I've set my face like flint and I know that I shall not be ashamed. He who vindicates me is near. And who will contend with me? Now, this is really, really interesting. This is Jesus saying, who's got anything against me that they can charge me with? Tell me about my rebellion against God. Tell me about my sin against God. Tell me where I did some evil. All I did was walk around teaching people and healing people. Who can bring a charge against me? He who vindicates me is near. So who contends with me? By the way, if that sounds familiar, it's very much like Paul writing, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Because it's God that justifies. Jesus just said, the one who vindicates me 
the one who justifies me, the one who sees me as innocent despite the fact that these human beings are judging me as guilty, the one who does that is God. Therefore, who's going to contend with me? Who can lay anything to my charge? And then he charges everybody on the planet to lay their case out against him. Let us stand up to each other. Who has a case against me? Let him draw near to me. Like, come and tell me what you got. You, you don't think I'm the righteous son of God? You think I've done something to deserve this kind of punishment? Come tell me. Make your charge. Well, when Jesus was actually being adjudicated and ultimately they decided to crucify him, we read in Matthew 26, 59 to 68, that the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. Now we have some sense of why he remained silent. He knew the charges were false and empty. And he was saying, who can lay anything against me? And in fact, if he had replied to any of those charges, it would have given the charge merit. Because he felt like it needed to be replied to. And instead, he stayed silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. Was it blasphemy, by the way? No. No, it was honest. It was truth. So in order to kill him, they brought up false charges. And the high priest was seeking people who would bring false charges against him. But then when he speaks the absolute truth to them, they call it utter blasphemy. And then says, what further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, he deserves death. And then, here we go again. And then they spit in his face and struck him. Exactly like Isaiah said. I gave them my back and I let them spit on me. You would think the high priest would know enough to recognize that this is Isaiah being fulfilled. That even as we strike him and spit on him, that is a fulfillment of exactly what Isaiah has said about him. And that means that he is the righteous one. And in their blindness and in their anger, they put him to death anyway. Perfectly satisfying and fulfilling exactly what all the prophets had already said about Christ, that when he came, he was going to die and rise again, as we're going to see in Isaiah 53. Isaiah's all over this whole thing. He's predicting every bit of it. So they spit in his face and they struck him, and some of them slapped him and mocked him, saying, prophesy to us, you Messiah. Who is it that struck you? All of that was predicted. Here in Isaiah, he who vindicates me, Isaiah 50, starting at verse 8, he who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up to each other. Who has a case against me? Let him draw near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who is he who condemns me? I can answer that question. It's the high priest mm -hmm. and the council of Jerusalem. They're the ones that condemn you. And yet Jesus says, what do you got against me? And then you read it in the gospel. I just read it to you. They ended up with nothing and condemned him anyway. And Isaiah predicted they'd come up with nothing. And it's exactly what they did. Behold, Jesus says, behold, they're all going to die. And just like I asked the high priest, what if you see the son of man? Lifted up on the clouds of glory. What are you going to do then? Well, here it's predicted. 
Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who is he who condemns me? Behold, they will all wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them. They're going to come to nothing. Who is among you that fears the Lord, that obeys the voice of his servant? Who is the servant? Jesus Christ. Yes. And who is there among you that fears the Lord? And who is there that obeys the voice of Christ? That was asked all the way back in Isaiah. And then this phrase has caused some consternation to people because of the translation of the word that's translated here as darkness. He's describing this person who fears the Lord, who obeys the voice of his servant, that walks in darkness and has no light. Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. What that's describing is that period of darkness, that period when God was silent, that 400 years that preceded Jesus coming to the planet. During that period, what did we read? The, the people walked in darkness. And the people who were walking in darkness saw a great light. And so these people fear the Lord. They obey the voice of the servant Christ and they've been walking in this darkness. They have no light. And so Christ is going to enlighten them. And then they will trust in the name of the Lord. And they will rely on their God. That's all predicted back here in Isaiah. And then you see it play out in the New Testament. And you read about it in the Gospels. And I just want you to know that what we're reading in the Gospels is not unique to the Gospels. The prophets all predicted it, and that's why Jesus could say to his disciples on the Emmaus Road that they were slow of heart to believe all that the prophets said. If they had understood what the prophets said, they would have recognized that Jesus Christ had to come, had to be condemned, had to die on the cross, had to resurrect again, had to sail up to the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and he's going to come back and judge the quick and the dead. And he's coming back on clouds of glory, and he's going to gather his church, and all those things that Christ is doing, including his death. We read in the book of Acts that Pontius Pilate and Herod and the Jews and the Gentiles were gathered together to do whatsoever your hand determined to be done. God determined all of it before it occurred. And to prove that he determined it, he wrote about it in advance so that when it happened, Jesus could point at the prophets and say, see, that's why he said, I haven't come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets. Everything that the prophets have said about me has to be fulfilled. But then in verse 11, the very last verse of this chapter, he then contrasts those who trust in God, who fear the Lord, reverence God, and who obey the voice of Jesus Christ. He contrasts that with people who try to do it themselves. I asked Charlie a little while ago, could you possibly be the cure to your problem? And she said, no. And yet there is a great deal of religion in the world, has been around for a very long time, and is still very prominent in a whole lot of Christianity in the world, where they say, the answer is you. The answer is you do it. You clean up your life. You improve yourself. All the way back here in Isaiah, the lie is laid to that particular approach. Look what it says. Behold, all of you who kindle a fire who encircle yourself with your firebrands, who walk in the light of your fire and among the brands that you've set ablaze, this you will have from my hand. You will lie down in torment. So the contrast is walk in the light of Christ or kindle your own fire. And if you're trying to kindle your own fire and walk in your own enlightenment and create your own set of righteousness and think you're okay because of your standard, Isaiah says, this you're going to have from the hand of God. You're going to lie down in torment. So the only real answer all the way back in Isaiah is 
Obey the voice of the servant. Fear the Lord God. Fear Yahweh. Trust in the name of the Lord and rely on your God. And if you're relying on yourself and if you're relying on your own ability and your own wisdom and your own righteousness, you're just busy lighting your own fire and then you're walking around by the embers, by the brands, the firebrands of your own self-made fire and God promises you nothing but torment. So even that is not a concept that's unique to the New Testament. It's all the way through the Bible. Righteousness is either a gift of God by his grace, just like we saw in Jeremiah 3, where Israel's problem could not be solved by Israel. It could only be solved by God saying, I'll be gracious and bring you back to myself. I'll take out your heart. I'll give you a new heart. I'll put my spirit within you. That's Jeremiah 31 and the promise of a new covenant. The answer to your problem is never you. Does this sound familiar yet? The answer to your problem is God, must be God, is completely God, and it's not you. Okay, do we agree with Isaiah 50? Yes. Every word? Yes. We're good with Isaiah 50? Yes. Everything in Isaiah 50, we would say that's the very word of God, and it actually has come true. We read about it in the New Testament. We see it in time and circumstance. Therefore, Isaiah 50 is completely true. True? Yes. You're with me on that? Yes. Isaiah 51 is the continuation of the same thought. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness. What's he been talking about? Pursuing righteousness by trusting God. Don't burn your own embers and walk in your own light. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. If you don't understand that phrase, he's now going to define it. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who gave birth to you in pain. When he was only one person, I called him, and then I blessed him, and I multiplied him. So Isaiah is still talking to Israel and Judah. They are the ones who are the direct descendants of Abraham and Sarah specifically. That's when he's saying, look at the rock from which you were hewn. Go look at the quarry from which I dug you up. That starting place where I found you is Abraham, your father. He was only one person when I found him. And I made him a multitude of people. I even changed his name to father of multitudes. And then I blessed him and I multiplied him. And indeed, the Lord will comfort Zion. Those are the people he's talking to. The people who are the direct descendants of Abraham. The ones who were in the Babylonian captivity at that moment, who he has said, I did not divorce you. I can redeem you and I will bring you back to your land. Indeed, the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. Remember, for 70 years, it's going to lay waste. And then when... Uh, Cyrus comes up and makes the edict that they can go back. They rebuild the temple. They rebuild their walls. He will comfort all her waste places and her wilderness. He will make like Eden and her desert will be like a garden to the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her thanksgiving and the sound of a melody. That hasn't happened yet. But God proved it when he did bring them back and rebuild the temple and rebuild the walls until Christ came and then he knocked it all down again. But the promise still exists that one day their wilderness is going to be like Eden. The desert is going to be like a garden to the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in Zion. Thanksgiving and the sound of a melody. Pay attention to me, oh my people. What people is that? That's Israel. The same group of people he's talking to all the way through here. Pay attention to me, O oh my people, and give ear to me, O oh my nation. Isn't that interesting that he refers to them as my people, my nation? Even though they've been rebellious. Even though he's put them out. Even though he's punished them, he holds out these grand promises of restoration and regathering and bringing them back to their home. Pay attention to me, O oh my people, 
Give ear to me, O my nation, for a law will go forth from me, and I will set my justice for a light of the peoples. My righteousness is near, my salvation has gone forth, and my arm will judge the peoples, and the coastland will wait for me. And for my arm, they will wait expectantly. Lift up your eyes to the sky, and then look to the earth beneath, for the sky will vanish like smoke, and the earth will wear out like a garment, and its inhabitants will die in a like manner, but my salvation shall be forever, and my righteousness shall not wane. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, a people in whose heart is my law. Do not fear the reproach of man, neither be dismayed at their revilings, for the moth will eat them like a garment, and the grub will eat them like wool, but my righteousness shall be forever, and my salvation until all generations. Who did he just say that to? Israel. Israel. And he repeated it. And he repeated it over and over. Are we um, fine with Isaiah 50? Yes. Then we have to be fine with Isaiah 51. If we're good with the first part of Isaiah 49, we got to be good with the second part of Isaiah 49. And that all says that God is going to restore Israel and regather Israel and be faithful to Israel. And here he said it again. Now that's Isaiah 51. In Isaiah 52, we're going to start getting into the direct suffering servant passages that will lead us into Isaiah 53. And it's unquestionable that those are true prophetic passages that all point to Christ. And we would all agree, everybody agrees, everybody who ever writes a book about the gospel in Isaiah, they all make a beeline to Isaiah 53. This is Isaiah 51. Isn't that just as true? Yes. Absolutely. I do not understand for the very life of me why people will read Isaiah 53 and ignore the 52 chapters that came before it. I had a friend over to the house the other day, and he asked me, he said, so you're going to be preaching this Sunday? And I said, I believe so. And he said, what will you be teaching on? And I said, oh, well, we're still in the book of Colossians. He said, you do it Wednesday nights? I said, sure, I'm going to try, yeah. He said, what you teaching? I said, we're still in Isaiah. And he went, that's been a while, huh? Mm I said, so you would rather I just stuck to Isaiah 53 and just be done with it? The way most people handle Isaiah? Are you aware that there are 52 previous chapters that are just as true as Isaiah 53? (laughs) And by the way, there's chapters after it too. And we're going to read every single one of them, every word that's in here, and we're going to reckon it all to be just as true as Isaiah 53. Why? Because it's all the word of God. And it's all the truth of God, and you can't ignore any part of it. And that means God is going to be faithful to Israel and to you. That's right. Got it? Got Got it. it. Happy you were here tonight? Yes. Yes. So am I. I'm very happy to be anywhere tonight. (laughs) Any questions? Or is it just that clear? It is clear, isn't it? Except for Micah. He's not clear on it. What, what were you going to say? I'm, I'm just struck with its clarity, actually. <laughs> oh, good. Good. You should be. Well, it, it's, I mean, because really the center of it is about the degree of God's redemptive work. I mean, when he phrases it in ways like, is my hand too short to ransom? Am I not powerful enough to deliver? I mean, built into that question is the idea that People expect this to be too much for him. Or, yeah. and, and the whole point in, within its context is a, a, that's why he's asking at the beginning for proof. Where's the proof of the, where's the receipt yeah. of this divorce that's supposed? Yeah. And so when the uh, replacement theology camp says that you know, God is done with Israel, I mean, they're saying 
that there should be proof and that God's grace isn't sufficient or, or it hasn't accomplished what... You're saying his hand is too short. So it's, it's a really strong affront to the degree of God's redemptive work. And now you know why they don't read it. That's why they go straight to Isaiah 53. Because the argument in 49, 50, 51 is so strong. So they just skip right over it. I love that there's this gospel message already happening before they even... Before you even get to Isaiah 53. Well, or before they even know about it. The Israelites have no idea that Jesus is coming. Yeah. All these promises that are just going to continue and be fulfilled in an even greater way than they realize with the Messiah coming. And when he said, I mean, it's got to be humbling for them when they live in this world of rules and law where we, we live in a world of grace and we've talked about Jesus our whole lives and, you know, right. we've got this, oh, Jesus died on the cross for sins. They have all this law that they follow all the time. And for him to say at the end of 50 that he who walks in darkness and has no light if they're in a bitter situation than the guy over here who lights his own embers. Yeah. So like that's got to be a humbling, a humbling statement for them. Because they're yeah. awake. So I'm better off here wandering the darkness and trusting the Lord than I am over here trying to make my own fire. Yeah, rev up my own way. Make my own uh, righteousness. Yeah. Um, and it seems kind of counter what they've been doing for a long time. You mean like God's ways are not... Our ways. Right. Yeah. <laughs> From what they've been <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. I'm constantly amazed by the Bible. I say I not only repeats himself, but he often repeats himself in a verbatim way. So you, you can't miss it. And it's like he's saying 2,700 years from now, approximately, you're going to need to hear this real clear and have it repeated. Yeah. And, and still... Some people don't get it. But. People are still arguing about it. Yeah. And it really is that clear, as Micah said. I it's can't just it's that such clear. a contention in the church, too. That's what it Isn't that astounding? Okay, so why is that? Why do you think that contention exists in the church? Anti-Semitism. Exactly. You think so? Big gold star on your forehead. Yep. It's exactly what it is. It's anti-Semitism within the church. Mm-hmm. I think some of it is just... No, a, a general... Well, yes, biblical ignorance. Right. right. Yeah. That we, I mean, they, they don't study eschatology. Right. Very... I mean, how full of ourselves do we have to be as Christians? How God full of ourselves we have to got be. Got rid of his chosen people. Yeah. Like how that he forgot about them. Who wants to believe in a God that went back on his promises yeah. and decided, eh, Yeah, never mind. Them. Yeah. I said you, I didn't mean you. Yeah, and, and I said it through my prophet Isaiah pretty clearly. Over and over still again. Still not. But I didn't mean you. Mean. It's astounding. It is. Yeah, but what Tom was getting a gold star for is that the history of the church, even the development of our millennialism back in the days of Augustine, it was to stop the millennial fervor of the Jews in the anticipation of their kingdom. If you look at as recently as Martin Luther, who I quoted at the beginning of the night tonight, he wrote vehemently against the Jews. Oh, there is a deep abiding sense that the Jews just cannot be getting all these good graces from God, considering how rebellious they've been. Jealousy. It could be. And yet what we read every time is God says, I know you've been rebellious. I know your other lovers. I know all that. So the solution is me being gracious to you the same way that we want God to be gracious to us. Right? Isn't that what we want? Mm-hmm. And there's still anti-Semitism here in the United States, as we've seen in two of the last three administrations, where they made promises to Iran that if war breaks out with Israel, you have got us on your side, Iran, and, and we will help you destroy Israel. And all that proves is that the Bible's still true. Yep. The Jews are still, to this day, not only existent, astoundingly, when most other people groups you find in the Bible don't exist anymore. They're everywhere everywhere on the planet. Exactly. And yet they're hated, widely hated. And that shouldn't be the, the way it is in the church. And yet, like you point out, it is. 
And it is because, as Micah points out, a genuine biblical ignorance. So, all right. Say good night to the internet congregation. Good night. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.